Hey, loyal listening audience. Thank you for tuning back in and listening to our podcast. Oh, man. I just said tuning, didn't I? <laughs> I promised myself several months ago I would never say tuning because tuning does not ap- uh, uh, apply to podcasts. But here I am saying it. Um, tuning, for those of you who don't know, has to do with actual radio dials when we used to have wheels that we would spin to uh, literally change the tune of the frequency that was coming through. Um, man, I'm dating myself now, and I'm not even that old, I guess, comparative to uh, you know radio and how long it's been around. But anyway, thank you for downloading the podcast. Uh, we, we always appreciate your listenership and joining in us on this journey as we continue to help augment people's own understanding of themselves and their world. Today's podcast is an interview that I conduct with a man named Yehuda Raymer. And Yehuda and I met uh, some months ago, and I, I think I may explain this in the interview when I introduce him, but he's, uh, he's really incredible. Um, Orthodox Jew and part of the gun community, and he's a, he's a pretty vocal proponent for Second Amendment rights and whatnot, but he also writes children's books on firearm safety, and um, he's just really fascinating. But I interviewed him because... Today's, uh, it happens to be the day after Holocaust Remembrance Day that we record this, and I I think it's really important that people understand Jewish tradition and why the Holocaust is important. So I talked to him about that, but then the the conversation ends up wandering into motivation and self-growth and personal insights and family systems and history, and uh, I think it's really, really cool, and I think it applies to a, a broad audience. So I hope you find it as interesting as I did when I was doing the interview. As always, we're brought to you by Zephyr Wellness, my company here in Reno and Sparks. My co-owner, Lindsay Bell, and I have uh, been working really hard to bring good, high-quality mental health services to the Northern Nevada area for several years now, and we're really proud of what we built. So check out ZephyrWellness.org if you get a chance. And um, also, uh, we're going to tie in a link, but in the meantime, check out walkthetalkamerica.org or wtta.org. That's where you can take a free and anonymous mental health screening. So if you think you're struggling with something, go to wtta.org, and there's like 13 different screening tools you can use to um, evaluate where you are mentally. Uh, totally free, totally anonymous, powered by Mental Health America. Find out more at mentalhealthamerica.net. We're also sponsored by Audible, and we're really happy to have that sponsorship because everybody wins with audiobooks. If you want a free 30-day trial, uh, no commitment whatsoever, you can go to audibletrial.com slash noggin notes and help support us. You download your free 30-day trial, you get a free audiobook to go with it, and then you have access to Audible's completely unmatched selection of audio titles and media. AudibleTrial.com slash Noggin Notes. If you don't know what audiobooks are, um, it's basically a book, but in audio version, which is super cool because you just uh, download it to your device and then slap in your earbuds and you can listen while you're, you know, you can listen to books and whatnot, um, print media, uh, voiced over by professionals or any sort of you know comedy and that kind of thing while you're doing chores or you're driving around town or whatever through your Bluetooth and your audio. So uh, in your sorry in your car your Bluetooth audio in your car. So please check out audibletrial.com/nagonotes. Get your free 30 day trial. Cancel any time. Keep the thing that you downloaded and um, help everybody out and while expanding your own knowledge base. I hope you find this interview educational. I know I certainly did. Enjoy. 
So we're talking today with Yehuda Raymer. Hello, Yehuda. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm excellent. Thanks. First question, I never actually asked you this, is um, I want to get a clear understanding. Yehuda means something, and if I'm uh, somewhere in the cobwebs of my brain, maybe from like a Hardy Boys book when I was younger or something, it, does it mean like um, honored or exalted or something like that? Uh, not necessarily. It was really just, it was one of the 12 tribes' names. I don't, to oh. my knowledge, there's no actual meaning of the name. There's no translation. It's just a biblical Jewish name that, you know, we've had since the time of, uh, the 12 tribes. Oh, neat. Okay. Well, see, we're learning already and we're only 36 <laughs> seconds into this thing. So, um, you and I met when, and I'll, I'll let you introduce yourself in a minute here. You and I met, uh, through this uh, organization that I've become a part of, Walk the Talk America. Walk the Talk America is trying to merge the uh, cultures of gun ownership and mental health. I'm the mental health guy. And so I've been introduced to a large portion of the firearms community of which you are a part. And you go by the moniker, the Pew Pew Jew. And I think that's awesome. It rhymes. Uh, it's great. Um, Pew Pew, for those of you who are listening who are not familiar with uh, Second Amendment uh, communities, is like a, a little short term, uh, shorthand for when you shoot a gun. It, um, you know, like in the old cartoons, it went pew pew, and so that's like you know we're going to go pew pewing or something. So you're the pew pew Jew, and you've got a whole brand behind you, and it's really cool. Uh, but we met in Arizona uh, a few months ago and uh, started to get to know each other. And what I really like is that you write children's books uh, on firearm safety, and that's really cool. And I want to pause there and let you explain the rest of what it is that you do. Yeah, so I uh, began writing children's books. Um, my first book I started writing in about 2011. Uh, the book is titled Safety On, An Introduction to the World of Firearms for Children. And I wrote it because my parents found out, even though I was married, living out of the house with two kids, but my parents found out I owned a firearm, and they kind of you know, went all Chernobyl on me, um, <laughs> total nuclear meltdown and I decided I needed to educate my children and you know I was a gun owner but that was about it just your your average run of the mill I bought my Glock 19 as my first gun gun owner and I was shocked to discover that there was no children's book devoted solely to firearm safety a book that a child would be able to read as well as a parent would be able to read to a child so I set out to write my first book, and it took me about five years to get it published. Wow. Why did it take so long? That's That seems crazy. Um, I wrote the book uh, relatively quickly. I started shopping it around, and then Sandy Hook happened. Mm. And I was turned down by over 35 publishing companies, 35 literary agents. Uh, we're talking about no one wanted to go near or touch a book that showed children and guns in a positive light. Wow. So I was kicked down to the ground over and over and over and over. And like I said, it took about five years to get my first book published. But uh, three, three years after my first book published, I, got, I now am an author of six books. That's so cool. And I am the proud owner of one uh, Safety On copy. And I read it to my children the other night, and one of them is old enough to understand. He's four and a half. The two-and-a-half-year-old just um, left the bed like he always does, whether we're reading Berenstain Bears or anything else. And um, 
Elijah was super enthralled and now he's running around the house with his his toy he's got some toy guns that i uh gave him that were mine years ago and he says never pointed at people always put it away so that ethan doesn't get ethan's the younger brother and i like i couldn't be prouder like one reading of the book and he's like got two of the four basic rules down (laughs) it's pretty sweet yeah i mean it's, it's great to hear stories like that um I know, uh, and I'm going to use this moment to do a little bragging rights, but um, I was at a shot show. I bumped into uh, Boone Benton, you know, from Benghazi. And uh, I gave him my books a couple of years ago, and, you know, we, we, we were talking um, uh, on Tuesday or Wednesday last week, uh, which is something we were just chatting, and he's like, you know, I just want to tell you, you know that I read your book to my kids all the time. That's super And I'm cool. like, I'm like, whoa, like, that's cool. When when one of the, you know, freaking American heroes of Benghazi is telling you that he uses your book to educate his children on firearm safety, I mean, that kind of, kind of raised my ego just a, just a tad, just a tad. You're, you're allowed to have that. Uh, for the listening <laughs> audience, because our, our, our listening audience is not... Um, full of a bunch of gun owners i don't i don't think i think most of who follows us is uh clinicians or random uh audience listeners who just want to learn about like insights to mental health and i and i promise listeners we will get to the holocaust that i teased in the intro um but maybe you could explain a little bit what shot show is because you and i both went down for that it was i was overwhelmed and then also who um who this guy is who is reading your books yeah so shot show stands for shooting hunting outdoor and trade and it basically is a, a industry show for anyone or any company that has, you know, uh, call it the latest guns, the latest, if, you're, if you're into hiking, the latest hiking boots or backpacks, hydration packs, um, tactical gear. I mean, a- anything dealing with either shooting, hunting, outdoor, or trade, uh, really anything. And it's about 12.8 miles worth of boots. Um, I think last I saw, you would want to hit every booth there from opening till closing over the four days. Uh, it would take, you were only allowed to use about 22 seconds per booth. I saw that same infographic. Um, yeah, it's pretty yeah. overwhelming. I mean, it's overwhelming. I know I personally walked over 20 miles in three days. Um, it's wild. And then in terms of the gentleman who, who said that he reads my books, uh, Boone Benton was one of the six soldiers in Benghazi, uh, in Libya in 2012, who fought, you know, at the embassy in a uh, big battle fight, uh, not to get into politics, but if you haven't seen the movie 13 Hours, go see it, you'll figure out exactly who he is and what he did and why it's such a big deal that he told me that, you know, he reads my book to his children. Yeah, and I think he's got something crazy like I don't know seven hundred thousand followers on Instagram or something like that. Um, he's yeah, he's a big I, deal. I don't know how many, but uh, he, he's a really down to earth, cool dude. So I'm really glad that you got that opportunity. Um, one of these days, maybe somebody will come to me like um, some famous <laughs> podcaster, like Joe Rogan, will be like, "I listen to your stuff all the time," <laughs> and I'll get the exactly. same I'll get the same feeling. Um, so anyway. Um, I appreciate the introduction. Thank you. Um, I wanted to talk specifically because we just had uh, Holocaust Remembrance Day. We're recording this on the 28th of January, and I believe it was the 27th or 26th, wasn't it? Uh, 
Uh, yeah, it was yesterday. Yeah, so uh, it's it's the year 2020. In case you're listening to this at some point in the future, and uh, this this will release about a week from now. But um, I think it's really important to revisit history of of all stripes and kinds. Um, when I teach the the basics of what mental illness is, I, I use an analogy that was taught to me by one of my mentors, uh, Christian Conti. I got to give him a shout out. Um, and, and I loosely say that um, depression is when we fixate our thoughts on something in the past that we can't do anything about and it, because it's, it's dead and gone and when we can't change it. And anxiety is when we fixate our thoughts on something in the future that we can't do anything about because it's not here yet. And, and the key word there is fixate. If we dwell there for too long, what we end up doing is robbing ourselves of the present moment and then we, we miss out on life, which gives us even more reason to be anxious or depressed. So – that's not to say that we live in the present so often that we forget to reflect, right? And we forget to anticipate things in the future. So I, I don't want to make this a sad tale of woe. Um, what I want to do is I want to make it educational so that we're revisiting history in order to notice some things, maybe some some patterns, uh, so that we don't replicate what has already been learned in the past. And then also... I want to create some empathy and a space for, for personal awareness for people who don't understand the family histories of people who uh, descended from Holocaust survivors and then talk about, like, you know, culture broadly. So uh, I want to pause there because that's, that's like my, my tee up for you to, to say what you're going to say about um, your family and, and all that stuff. So um, take it away and I'll just sprinkle in questions as they, they pop into my head. Yes. So uh, yesterday was Hol- International Holocaust Remembrance Day, and you know it means a lot to me. I lost over sixty relatives during the war, um, in the Holocaust particularly. And you know, one one although I lost t- a countless amount of relatives, I did have the the honor, I guess, the privilege. I don't know the right word, but to act, to actually grow up with both sets of grandparents. Um, that said, most of uh, all my grandparents have passed except my grandmother. Uh, but yesterday, the, the shirt that I posted, um, my grandfather was born in a city called Ludge, and when he was 13, he had numbers tattooed on his arm. He then went to 11 out of 12 concentration camps. Wow. In the Polish, in the Poland. Germany area. He, he was transferred numerous times. But when he was 14, he was in Auschwitz and he was pulling gold teeth out of dead bodies at a, age 14. Uh, he did survive the war. He came over to America, joined the Air Force, fought in Korea, and then proceeded to you know, live his life. Um, as a proud American patriot who survived the Holocaust. What's his name? Mark. Mark Diamond. And I, I think that's important because I want to put names to, to these stories um, because it's important yeah. to keep these people's uh, memories alive. Um, is he is he still with us? Or did he die? No, no. He, he passed seven years ago. Okay. Uh, he put up a, a long fight with cancer. Um, but, you know... It took it took cancer a long time to beat him. I'll tell you that much. Yeah, well, uh, if the concentration and, camp doesn't beat you, you know, <laughs> yeah, not exactly. much will. You, but you know, he he had the number B dash seven nine three seven tattooed on his arm, but that was just one of my grandparents. My grandmother, who is alive right now, 
she actually was saved by Sempo Sugihara, who, if you're not familiar with Sempo Sugihara, Sugihara, he was a Chinese consulate who actually was stamping visas of Jews in 1939 so that they can go to China and escape Nazi Germany. And he stamped about 4,500 passports. And my grandmother and her parents actually lived in Shanghai for, I believe, eight years wow. before, they Im- before they immigrated to America. So that's how she survived. And then um, I have a grandfather who passed away about a year and a half ago. And he was hit by Ukrainian farmers in a ditch, probably about six feet long, five feet deep, and maybe three and a half, four feet wide. Uh, he lived in this ditch for 19 months. Wow. Yeah. That's crazy. So these so these farmers just like fed him and cared for him, but he wasn't obviously in their home. He was he was right. out, well, out in the backyard there, somewhere? There was, a, there was a backstory to why the farmers did it. Um, basically what happened was is this, this poor farmer who lived on the Russian-Ukrainian border near the Carpathian Mountains, he had a farm, and every time he bought any kind of livestock, it would just die immediately. The guy had horrible luck with all of his animals, and he came to my great-grandfather at the time, who dealt with livestock, and he said, hey, uh, you know, I, I need a horse, or I don't survive. And my grand, he said, but I can't pay you. So my great-grandfather turns to him and says, look, Here's a great horse. It's yours. One day you'll repay me when you make money. A uh, couple years later, as the Nazis were getting closer and closer and things in the, in the city of Colome, which is where my grandfather was from, were getting, you know, the heat was coming down. Basically, my grandfather went to this farmer. Um, oh, and mind you, the horse didn't die and actually saved the farm, and he produced a lot of crops and, you know, not became wealthy, but was able to live with his family. Um, my gra- my great-grandfather, great-grandfather went to this farmer and said, hey, you, you need to help us. And the farmer said, not a problem. You saved my life. I will save your life. And he went to the, the silo, the barn, dug this ditch, through my grandfather, great-grandfather, great-grandmother, and great-uncle into this ditch and uh, put a piece of plywood on top, put bales and bales of hay, and uh, they lived like that for 19 months, only coming out for about an hour every night. But what, what was in this ditch for 19 months. That's incredible. I mean, that's yeah, absolutely it, it, incredible. You know, if, if, if Hollywood would make a story, if Hollywood would make a, a movie on this, a, you wouldn't believe it. Uh, to be buried alive for 19 months, only allowed to come out for, you know, one one hour a day, and that was in the middle of the night, um, you're, it, it's not believable. Um, it never happened. It, it can't happen. Something like that, people can't survive. Unfortunately, my great-grandfather perished while hiding and they had to literally throw his body in a ditch in the middle of the night um, to bury him but my great my, my grandfather great uncle and great grandmother did make their way to America 
after uh, after the war. Gee whiz. Yeah, it gives you, it gives you a, a very different appreciation. You know, I look, I'm 35. Um, I guess technically you could consider me a millennial, but <laughs> growing up with that story as part of your heritage kind of doesn't give you the option of, you know, being a whiny little brat. <laughs> yeah, or complaining about anything that is related to first world problems, right? Yeah, exactly. You know, I remember growing up, anytime I would say something, um, you know, my grandfather would just turn to us and go, well, back in my day, and we're like, oh, here we go again. And then yeah. we just learned to just keep our mouths shut. And, and as I tell my kids, we just learned to cowboy up because, you know, if, if grandpa survived that, then, you know, I, I think I can survive. I don't know, you, you name it, growing up, you know? Yeah. Yeah, uh, when the when the when the cable goes out and you can't watch your uh, Ducktales on <laughs> TV, yeah, and, and you know, exactly. you know, phrases like that, you know, back in my day, are I think we hear them these days and we roll our eyes and we go, okay, boomer, and um, they're not meant to shame; they're meant to create perspective and also some inspiration. That says, hey, if if I can do it, you can do it, and and there's a psychological concept out there that says that um, if a human being has done a thing, it is therefore human nature. And therefore, humans having the same nature are capable of anything any other human has ever done, which is very, very inspiring, I think. Uh, it's a little depressing because it says, wait a minute, you mean I'm capable of doing horrific things? Well, yeah, you are. But we, if we choose differently, we can choose to you know, overcome great odds and um, achieve great things that, that anybody else ever has. And that's why we look to great people as inspiration to, to do more. Right. And, and I think that's not to be overlooked. So I appreciate you sharing that story. Tell me a little bit about how this, this culture, not only in your family, but across the, the broader Jewish community has, has resulted in, um, like, a I guess a mentality. Is it, is it like you and I were talking before we started recording and we talked a little bit about like the head down, you know, don't put yourself out there mentality. And I want you to, um, maybe give some perspective on what that is like, like, you know, you, you tend to hide in the uh, back a little bit and uh, for people who have basically been oppressed for, you know, 4,000 years or something. Um, but also there's a ton of resilience too, right? How, help me reconcile that or help, help the listening audience maybe understand that. So in terms of resilience, it's just one of the things we believe in that, you know, we are God's chosen people and no matter how hard things get, you know, we're not going to go anywhere. We might take some uh, bumps and bruises along the way, but you know, we're not going anywhere. God's not going to get rid of us. But in terms of, you know, us being affected by the Holocaust, I do know that as, grandchild, as a grandchild of Holocaust survivors, you know, I love my parents, but, you know, they're a bit crazy because they are children of Holocaust survivors and they have this mentality, this paranoid, neurotic mentality that a lot of children of Holocaust survivors have because that's what happened after the war. You know, they came to America and they're so scared of the Holocaust happening, happening again that they get this, you know, paranoia, overprotective mentality. Um, is that a good thing? Yes. Is it a bad thing? Yes. As someone who is in the mental health profession, I'm sure you can understand that being too overprotective could be detrimental to a child's well-being. Sure. Uh, um, I'm, my father always said, there's no such thing as too much love. And I'm like, well, clearly you don't pay attention because there clearly is. <laughs> uh, but, you know, it's just one of those things that a lot of Jews have this mentality. Um, 
and it's it's a good thing it's a bad thing so good and so far as it um it creates a lot of uh self-reliance and probably pressing in toward one's own family and one's own very tight personal network but also negative because you don't necessarily get out and get a lot of uh risk exposed experiences is that sort of accurate yes yeah that, that i feel is accurate at least in my case it was you know um i always i was a black sheep i come from a family of four um i was always the black sheep of the family always uh you know doing my uh, beating to my own drum and, and not really caring what other people thought about me uh and my parents were always you know super old, super paranoid neurotic overprotective and it came down to the point where i finally told my parents i'm like stop protecting me so much I want to make mistakes. Interesting. If I, if, well, because if I don't make mistakes, how am I ever going to learn? I mean, interesting that it's it's that self enlightenment. You know, a lot of kids don't have that. I don't know what age you were when you finally squared off with them, but a lot of us never arrive at that point. Well, let's just say I was. I'm 35 now. When I was 14, it probably hit me that my parents were this way, and it wasn't a healthy thing. Mm. Um, and I have been fighting with it for now, like the tw- 21 years I've been fighting with it. I've come a very long way. Uh, you know, I've never, I've never talked to a, any kind of psychologist or psychiatrist about it. It's just like you said, self enlightenment, realizing that to live this way is incredibly unhealthy. Um, I'm willing to take risks that my family in a million years would never take. Um, I'm willing to do things that are way out of my comfort zone uh, because the, the famous line, if you're not willing to, the, the greatest risk in life is not taking a risk at all. And I'm not one of these people that can sit down and go through a mundane existence. I have to be out there. I have to be creating. I have to be be challenging myself. And if I'm going to sit there, uh, you know, just absolutely terrified of my own shadow, then I'm never going to accomplish anything in life. Uh, case in case in point is public speaking, right? I, I mean, I used to be terrified. I mean, I'm talking about public speaking was, you know, persona non grata, public enemy number one in my life. And it came to the point when my first book came out a little over three years ago. I was like, well, man, how am I going to be successful if I can't go on a podcast, if I can't, <laughs> you know, speak about my journey to get this book published. And I'll never forget, you know, I, I immediately, when my book came out, um, the first podcast I did was probably about three weeks after my book came out. And the gentleman interviewing me was like, hey man, don't worry about it. It's a pre-recorded podcast. If you mess up, if you say something you regret, we'll just cut it out, nothing. I was in the bathroom for like four hours before the podcast, I and mean, I was absolutely terrified. And then I stupidly uh, accepted an invitation to speak. Uh, are you familiar with Alan Gottlieb and the Second Amendment Foundation? Uh-huh. Yeah, I am. So, all right. I'm gun right, of course. Gun rights policy conference. So I spoke. So about three months after my first book came out, I introduced myself to Alan Gottlieb at a conference. And, you know, I asked him for his endorsement on my book. And... Uh, he loved my book and he said, hey, by the way, would you like to speak at the Gun Rights Policy Conference? And stupidly, I said, yeah. You're like, sure, I've done a podcast. It's the same. Well, yeah, I've done a podcast or two. I'm like, yeah, I can do it. Thinking, wait, the Gun Rights Policy Conference, there must be what? All of like 
30 people there, right? Maybe like a little get together. <laughs> and by the way, how many people am I speaking to? He goes, oh, about three to 400, depending on the year. And I'm just like, yeah, sure, I'll do it. And like, I just called my wife. I'm like, oh my God, how stupid am I? And I immediately went online. I got myself a fidget cube. Um, and I mean, that, that thing became my, my, my lifeblood. I mean, any podcast I did, I, I was playing with it. When I went to speak at the gun rights policy conference, I mean, you can't see it, but I had that thing in my hands and it was moving at freaking, you know, <laughs> light speed. And, um, now it's come to the point where when I publicly speak, I still get a little nervous because, you know, everyone does, but not nearly what it was back then. And also when I do podcasts now, you know, I'll have friends who say, hey, man, do uh, you want to come guest on our podcast or our other guests uh, dropped out or medical emergency, whatever. I'm like, yeah, when are we going on? They're like, oh, in about two minutes. I'm like, yeah, no problem. And it doesn't even save me. It, it, you know, and it's something that I fought long and hard to overcome. And um, I love my family, but a lot of them, you know, still are afraid to overcome their fears. Whereas I am out there, uh, if there's something that I'm afraid of, I will try to take it head on and overcome it because I can't live my life, uh, you know, just sitting back and saying, oh, whatever happens, happens. It's, that's not the way my life can be run. I really appreciate you sharing that because I think it's instructive to a lot of our uh, listening audience. Um, when families go through trauma, it can affect the next generation. They can become overprotective or, or maybe they, they go the other direction. There's a, there's a psychological term called enantiadromia. It comes from a guy named Carl Jung. Uh, and meaning in anti-opposite, dromea is Greek for running. So you're, you literally translate it's running in the opposite. And then uh, parenthetical is uh, direction of that which you know well. So if, if all you know is, you know, trauma and ridicule and abuse and bullying and all that stuff, you may grow up and then have offspring that you, you end up, you know, protecting, which, you know, is the opposite of what you've experienced, which is being out there and being exposed, or you push them the opposite direction and say, go do this, go do this, be bold, be strong, be courageous. Don't be like I was where you were, you know, beaten down and bullied. Um, so your, your personal self-awareness, I think to realize that you're a product of this family system and this family dynamic, um, can not only, you know, uh, influence the way that you work, but also can be overcome and changed in the direction that you want. I think that's super, super illustrative. And I hope that if people are listening and they're like, Oh man, that sounds like me. Like my parents were raised in blah, blah, blah circumstance. And now I'm blah, blah, blah because of it. Um, just know that you can alter that course. It's not, it's not fate. Like it's, and it's definitely not in our blood. Like there's no, there's no genetic component there. It's just, it's just environment and we can, we can structure ourselves to respond to our environments differently. So I appreciate that. And, and as for the, the stage fright thing, man, that's, that's absolutely real. And, um, if anybody's out there struggling with, uh, you know, speaking or public speaking, um, listen to Yehuda, it can be done. <laughs> you can go do that. Um, that's, that's really cool. Thanks for, thanks for sharing that, man. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I'm, I'm, uh, like I said, uh, it's just something that it took me a long time to overcome. Um, and you know, let's say for all your listeners out there, it's a hundred percent doable. Um, the hardest thing to, to imagine when you're trying to overcome any kind of obstacle is failure, right? At, at least mm -hmm. this is the way I see it. Every time 
I had to get up to publicly speak, the worst case scenario is failure. Right? If I decide, you know what, I'm going to let it get the best of me, and I fail to get up there and overcome my fear at that moment, that's fine. I've been doing this for 21 years, and it is still a struggle for me. But every time, every, every battle, so to speak, right? Every time you have to get up and confront your fear, it's a battle. It's not the war. Mm-hmm. The war will la- the war might last your whole life, right? And I'm I'm I only got over it in the last two years, right? So let's talk about you know chalking up points, man. Fear of over fear of public publicly speaking, man. It, it's got like I'm like four for seventy five, and you know <laughs> like. I'm way behind on catching up to all the times I fail. <laughs> but but there is a starting point that you need to overcome that once you're able once you're able to overcome that starting point, then you're gonna catch up and you're gonna beat your fears very, very easily because it gets easier and easier and easier. It does. You're, you're talking about two different things here, the way I'm seeing it. One is uh, distress tolerance, being able to push through uh, some sort of distress or some emotional experience. Uh, and I envision emotion as a wave. There's a beginning, a middle, and an end. And in the middle is where you, you really, neurologically, you lose control and you have to feel something. And so once you push through that, you get to the other side and you realize that you had an experience. It was scary. It was t- hard. It was sad. It was whatever it was. Um, but the world didn't spin off its axis. And once you go through that, you realize, oh, I did that once. I could probably do it again. And so then you do it again. And that's the second point, which is practice. So we, we only get good at what we practice. And, and what you did is you practiced overcoming those fears and practice pushing through it. And then you're right. It does get easier and easier. Nothing's, nothing's as hard as it is the first time you do it. And so, and, and that's because once you do it the first time, your, your brain realizes that you can do it. And then you can do it again and again, and you can do it with different amplitudes. So that's that's super instructive as well, um, because I think a lot of us end up getting this this false understanding, or I guess a false obstacle in our head that says, um, you can't do that thing because you've never done it. Well, then all, that goes back to, you know, what, well, what is human nature? Human nature is anything any human has done. So if we look at somebody like you, and we go, well, he's done it, that means I could probably do it too. And all you got to do it is that first time. Interestingly, though, and in quite a paradoxical irony, a lot of people freeze because they realize that going through the difficulty once means that they can do it again. So people who are stuck, for example, in in patterns of chaos, to get out of that chaos invites peace and tranquility. And sometimes the fear of going there is more powerful than the misery of the present. So they don't even want to try it once because in their heads they're like, well, if I do it once, I'm going to have to keep doing it. And I just don't know if I can sustain that. And that's what we know is sometimes a fear of success. Right. So so the fear of success, right? So I want to give a literally perfect example, and I'm not lying to you. I'm looking at my phone right now. I just got a text message from somebody four minutes ago. I bumped into this person. This guy has, when I tell you he's a huge social media presence, um, I, I can't publicly say who it is offline, I'll tell you, but mm-hmm. uh, I can't publicly say. I approached him last year at SHOT Show and introduced myself and gave him my books because I know the guy has a few kids. And he loved my books, and he turns to me, and he says, hey, you know what? I've had an idea for a book. I would love to talk to you. I'm like, oh, my God, this is huge. (laughs) 
I give me his card. I email him three or four times throughout the year. No response. Never heard back. I bump into him again this past year. I had two new books. I gave him my new book. And he goes, hey, you never got in touch with me. And, and like I said, this guy is huge, like huge, huge. And I said, hey, look, you gave me your card. I emailed you. It's not my fault that, you know, you didn't respond. <laughs> and he goes, he goes, oh, you know what? I might have given you my assistant's card. I'm so sorry, blah, blah, blah. He goes, give me your phone. And I gave him my phone, and he puts his cell phone number in my phone. Now, this alone is a massive coup, because we're talking about a huge celebrity putting their number in my phone. <laughs> right? Yeah. He said to me last week, he goes, do me a favor. In two weeks, I'm super busy. Let's be in touch uh, next week, which is this week. So I gave, uh, I didn't bother him yesterday because it's Monday, getting back in the swing of things. I was absolutely terrified to text this person this morning. Terrified. Because he's a celebrity. He is very interested in writing a book with me. And that's terrifying. Absolutely terrifying. And yet, he but, puts his pants on one leg at a time, doesn't he? <laughs> Well, exactly. Well, in my in my eyes, he doesn't. He's just perfect, right? Right, um, right. But I texted him this morning, literally five minutes ago as we're on the phone. He texts me back. Let he goes, hello, my favorite Jew. Let's chat Thursday. That's so cool. And and again, you know, that the whole mentality uh, that I always joke about is like, but did you die? Right. But did you die? You yeah. Something. But did you die? That's my, that's literally my mindset. Like the worst, I, and I have people, because I do a lot of the advocacy in, in the, the Second Amendment world, I have people who have been in this business much longer than I have calling me all the time saying, hey, we need help. How do we approach this person? How do we approach that person? And my response to them <laughs> is always the same. Like, why are you asking me? <laughs> no, not my, my response to them is literally this. Just go up to them. Just go up to them. They're That's like, awesome. but, but, but how do we just go up to them? I'm like, go up to them. Say, hi, my name is so-and-so. Here's my card. This is what I do. I would love to interview you. They're like, but what happens if they say no? I'm like, then that's the worst case scenario is you get a no. So you pick up, you move on, and you try it again in a year. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I'm like, but... but, but if you do not ask, if you are too afraid to ask, to approach the, you know, anybody. I mean, again, it's not just approaching celebrities. Not a, I'm not, I'm just using that in, the, in example because, you know, I'm just coming back from SHOT Show and this is what I do for a living. But um, I'm talking about anything in life. If you're not willing to try it, then you're never going to know if you can overcome it. Ah, amen. Yeah, yeah. What about sustaining it? How do you, how do you, I know we're getting a little off topic because I want to go back to the whole no, okay. at some point. This but, is fun. I like, but this, this is, is actually this is really good. This and is it, actually something that I love talking about that most people don't talk about with me. So this is, this is actually fantastic. Well, it's motivating too. I think, um, I'm getting a lot out of it, uh, cause it reaffirms a lot of what I, I do, you know, in my work. So, um, let's talk about sustaining that for a second. So let's say this celebrity who you've been, you just been texting, uh, he moves forward and he's like, yeah, let's write a book together. And you write a book and then all of a sudden it becomes New York Times number one bestseller. And and then it's like, well, how do we follow that up? 
and then all of a sudden it's like, I don't know if you've ever been snowboarding or skiing, but you start at the top of the lift. And if you've ever like done it for the first time, you go down the bunny run and you kind of get your balance, but then you go up to the top and it's like, okay, I'm up here. There's only one way down <laughs> and you, and you yeah. gotta go. And, and once you go and you hit that stride, like you're in, you're in perfect rhythm, you're going, man, like you're going. And then you can't wait to do it again when you get to the bottom, supposing you didn't fall and like, you know, tear your knee apart, but like my wife did once. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's a little bit like that. Like you, you reach for success first, you take that first grab, right. And, and, um, and it's very scary and it's very intimidating. And then you push through that, that wave, that, that, uh, that vulnerability and you go, Holy cow, I went through this and it worked and I didn't die and the world didn't spin off its axis. Well now, now what? Well, you got to do it again. And you know, families coming out of chaos, people recovering from trauma, uh, people like me who had several false start careers and been fired several times from work, having to get back on and apply for yet another job or, or like for, form your own company. Like, like we did here with Zephyr. It's like, well, but what if it fails? It's like, yeah, but what if it doesn't? That's really the fear, right? Is the sustainability of the success. So talk talk about that. What you've found some success now. You've written six books. You've got some merchandise out. People you're becoming well known in the community. How do you keep it up? Um Or did I just no, give you anxiety? Always, no, no. I'm just trying to think how to phrase it. There's always someone out there who is better well off than you are, who's more successful than you are. Right? You, you learn from them. That's it. You just learn from them. I'm not, nice. I'm, I'm look, am I looking to be the most successful person in my industry? Yes. Would I love for that to happen? Yes. Would I strive for that to happen? Yes. But like I tell my kids all the time, you win some, you lose some. You're not going to win every, every battle you fight or you're not going to try, you're not going to accomplish everything you set out to do. But if there are people out there who you can learn from, if there are people out there who can help you, then you either learn from them, you ask them. Um, heck, I have a buddy of mine who, who works at Cabela, and um, I introduced him to some people at SHOT Show. He's really one of my closest friends. I love this guy to pieces. He's got his own podcast called Tundra Tactical. Uh, it's fantastic. Uh, but he, he, he texted me this morning. He's like, hey, man, I just had a meeting with my GM, and I'm pushing your books to get into Cabela's and Bass Pro. Whoa. Now, am I holding my breath? Maybe just a little bit. Would I absolutely love for it to happen? Yes, a hundred percent. I mean, that would be that would make me quite a wealthy person very quickly, and I would greatly appreciate that. But at the same time, at the same time, that's only the first step. If it doesn't end up happening, okay, it doesn't end up happening. Um, I, I come from, I come from the mindset of, uh, you know, to put it, to put it, to put it very easily. A lot of people ask me like, Oh, you go to all these gun shows over the weekend, but you never go on Saturday, which is the busiest day, right? I'll go to like the NRA show, uh, out of state and I'll go there Friday and I'll go there Sunday, but I'm never there Saturday. And my friends are like, what's the point of even going all like the biggest day is Saturday. I said, maybe the biggest day for you is Saturday. As an Orthodox Jew, I cannot go on Saturday because it's my Sabbath, which means if I'm meant to be, if it is meant to be a successful trip for me, it will happen on Friday or it will happen on Sunday. I don't need Saturday to make it a successful trip. I love that. 
That's awesome. So, right. So, so in, uh, in other words, if you're meant to be successful, you'll be successful, right? So if I end up writing a, a book with this celebrity and it ends up doing well, where do I go from there? Well, who knows? Maybe, maybe there'll be other people in the industry that want to write books with me. And you know what? If there isn't, maybe I now inspired a whole new slew of authors to get out there and write about American patriotism, write about the Second Amendment. Maybe my calling is not necessarily being a successful author. Maybe it's helping and guiding and, and, and you know, uh, advising people, inspiring people to do the same thing. Maybe that's where my talent's going to end up lying. And if that's the case, then I'm going to accept that wholeheartedly. Just because you're successful once doesn't mean you're going to be successful at the same thing again. And if you can live with that, if you can live with that, then that's fantastic. You know, what I'm hearing here is a mixture of faith and non-attachment and good boundary setting. And then the faith that setting good boundaries will ultimately result in whatever it's meant to. And... I, I really appreciate that because so often in, in my world, we're trying to help teach people how to set and maintain good boundaries as well as respecting others' boundaries, right? So you set a boundary for yourself. It says, setting aside a Sabbath day is important to me. And I have enough faith that wherever I'm going to go, wherever God's going to guide me is going to be done on his terms and under his conditions, not my own. I'm not going to just override this out of you know selfish greed and ambition, right? But then you're also pointing to the idea that you can be non-attached to the way that it looks. So, you know, in my feeble brain, I'm thinking, oh, you write books. You're going to write a book. It's going to be successful. You're going to write a follow-up book. But you're like, no, no, maybe not. Maybe it looks like mentorship. Maybe it looks like leadership. Maybe it looks like speaking engagements. You know, the thing that scared you half to death 10 years ago now is like going to become the thing. You're, you're going to do the speaking circuit or, you know, whatever it is. Um, and I really appreciate that because it really speaks to one's own personal peace. You know, when you find inner peace, it's often because you found a, a quiet confidence that wherever life is going to go, wherever it's going to end up, um, is, is going to be okay because you've already determined that it's going to be fine regardless of how it looks. And I just really appreciate that. I really want everybody to hear that message that you can have your faith, you can set your boundaries. You don't have to be pushed around by, whatever society deems is successful or, you know, money's great and that's all well and good. But, um, really when it comes down to what you feel on the inside, are you at peace? Are you confident? Are you happy with what, what you're doing? And when you're all that stuff that you've done, you've, you've written books for children, right? To be safe. That's super important. Getting books in Cabela's and Bass Pro would be like ultimately more children being safe. That's amazing. Um, when you right. talk about mentorship or, or shepherding new people into the, into the industry, that's all for the benefit of other people. You're, you're, you're really looking at outside yourself and, and giving back like, yeah, money comes along with it, but it's not about that. So everything that you're saying is really like selfless. And I, I really appreciate that. That's so cool. And you only get that when you're taking risks. So, you know, going back to, you know, your, your family and being super protective, like really when you're protecting people from impending doom or whatever it is, you may actually be inadvertently uh, inhibiting them from impacting the world. I mean, just to, just to take it one step further, you know, in, in, in Judaism, we believe obviously in the concept 
of, uh, you know, um, well, I think it's not just a concept in Judaism. I think in general, it's just a concept that, you know, I can work super hard and, and try to do everything I want. But ultimately, it's not up to me how much money I'm going to make in a year. That all comes from God. And having that mindset of whether or not I will be successful, it's not up to me. Yeah, and it's not it's not measured by um, monetary gain either. Right, exactly. But if, if meaning if my books are meant to get into Gabellas and Bath Pro and I become wealthy that way, does my hard work account for that? Yes. But whether or not the, the higher-ups at Cabela's and Bass Pro say, you know what, we want to carry his books, that's not up to, that, that's up to God. That, that has, right. I, I have no control over that. Yeah, I get you. It, it, you just you just work hard and you you put out the product that you believe you're meant to do. Like you know, we'll take uh, counseling for example. Um, I I started my career obviously face to face psychotherapy in the office, but then it's moved into supervision of interns and students, and then it's you know running an agency, and now it's now it's really community outreach is what it's about. I've, I'm a part of all these other organizations, and same work ethic, same output, but I don't. I don't look at it in terms of like a uh, transaction where it's like, I'm going to, I'm going to exchange this effort for some sort of income. I just have faith that what I'm doing is the right thing to do. And my bills will get paid <laughs> and, exactly. and it works and it works. That's awesome. I appreciate you saying that too. Let's turn this back to, um, to the Holocaust. Cause we're talking about the Holocaust remembrance day. Um, yeah. why is it important that non Jews, appreciate and understand Jewish history broadly, but also the Holocaust specifically? I mean, you have to learn from the from history, right? We, we always talk about that, that if you, if you don't learn from history, you're doomed to repeat it. We're seeing a lot of repetition in the way people, you know, people's vocabulary, what they're saying now, um, not just in the world, but even in America. And it's, it's scary to think that you're, you're hearing echoes of Nazi Germany by people in the United States government. Now, if people don't learn from the past, you, we, we are doomed to repeat it. At the same time, one thing we have going for us in America versus anywhere else is walking around shot show and being ex- completely accepted for who I am. People do not care. A majority of Americans don't care about your, your religion. They, they don't. They don't care that I'm Jewish. They care about one thing. Am I pro-gun? Great. Am I anti-gun? You're against us. So it's important for, for non-Jews especially to understand that a Holocaust can happen again. Uh, you know, Jews believe that. I personally don't think it will happen again, at least not in America, because there are too many good Americans out there who would never allow it to happen. I think the people who do want it to happen, the people you do here in the U.S. government and all the other ones, uh, you know, on the left parroting all these other people, they, they're just parroting what they hear from the people who they think are in power. But at the end of the day, if you don't learn from history, you're doomed to repeat it. It really is that simple. So you're not talking about like a necessarily a, um, a racist or anti-Semitic attitude. It's more about the, the speaking bullet points that indicate a restriction of freedoms. Is that, is that more yeah. accurate? Okay. Yeah. Yes. I mean, look, the, the, the uptick in anti-Semitism that you're seeing in America, really, if you really break it down, you 
a majority of it is based in the tri-state area, right? New York, New Jersey, mainly New York, New Jersey, not even Connecticut that much. Yes, you do have your sprinklings of anti-Semitic attacks. And I know a lot of people are going to be like, oh, sprinkling, you know, the Pittsburgh shooting is not a sprinkling, obviously. But that was a one-off. You're seeing constant attacks in New York and New Jersey. But you have, you know, in Los Angeles, uh, in my community that I grew up in, there's been a bunch of attacks in the recent years. Um, so you're definitely seeing it a lot, but I don't think you're seeing it on a, on a national scale that you saw that, that, you know, they're making it out to be. Uh, I, it's definitely there, and it, there's definitely an uptick. Um, and it's just nice to know that there are a lot of people out there who won't stand for it. I've had a lot of I've had a lot of my friends message me privately say, "Hey man, you know, if if it ever does come down to another Holocaust, you let us know. We have places we can hide you." <laughs> like, that's cool. I'm very appreciative. I'm very appreciative, but at the same time, it's you know it's terrifying to think that I actually in 2020 I have to get a message like that. Where where does that originate? Because it doesn't seem like I, I don't know. I like I. I... I have a journalism degree from undergrad and what I'm seeing now in the, the, the most of the media, uh, social and mainstream is not journalism. It's clickbait and it's clickbait for the sake yeah. of money and, you know, for, through advertisers, cause it's all driven by um, hits and exposures and, and that kind of thing. Um, so I don't even know that there's been an uptick in antisemitism so much as it's been coincidental, but I, I don't, I'm not in a position to assess that. Um, and so I'm wondering if, if there really is an uptick or, or if it's, we're just hearing about it because it, it drives no, there, clicks. There, there definitely is an uptick in anti-Semitism over the last couple of years, um, uh, in America. There, there's no question about that. Okay. Um, you, you see it, uh, like I said, mainly on the East coast in New York, New Jersey, there's a lot of vicious attacks. Where does that originate? But, you know, why, why now? You know, that's a good question. I actually had a great conversation with Kevin Dixie about this. Kevin's been on this podcast before, actually, um, and I, I'm interested to hear what you guys talked about. I mean, KD's awesome. I, I absolutely love him, and I, I he, he's one of my spiritual two-way advisors. You know, I'm, I'll, I'll ask him for advice all the time because he is just so level-headed. Um, he's great. Uh, but we basically talked about you know, I asked him, and, and I kind of disagreed with him a little on this. And, and again, I don't want to get into politics too much because I'm sure that's not where your po- you know what your podcast is about. But at the end of the day, um, at the end of the day, when you have a commander in chief who frequents a a church that is that has a known anti-Semitic leader. You have a commander-in-chief who, and I'm not talking about Trump. Hmm. Um, I mean, I'm talking about Obama. Uh, you know, you have you had a commander-in-chief who, who gave billions of dollars to Iran, who walked around and, and you know, was pro-Hamas and all these other organizations out there. Um you know, unfortunately, you do have 
followers, learn, you know, lead, lead by example. Hmm. And I feel that before Obama took office, there really wasn't much of an issue. Like I said, I have no doubt there was anti-Semitism. Like, but we're talking about small, small, small scale. But following following his presidency, you know, it kind of gave, I don't want to say carte blanche, but emboldened people to just, you know, hate Israel, hate Jews. That's a fascinating take, and I had never considered that before. And and even if we, like, we strip away all the presumptions of uh, why President Obama did those things, the point is that he did them, and how the message is received is received differently based on whoever's uh, listening to it. And what's fascinating to me is we hear, um, you know, mainstream media these days is pushing a lot of um, Trump as a racist type of things. And right. and, it, and it, now that you're laying that out, because it's like, well, it doesn't make any sense that Trump would be, you know, pushing anti-Semitism because his kids married Jews. Like, um, Not that that necessarily, you know, negates anything or, or validates anything. Correlation isn't causation. But um, but now that you're laying out the timeline, it's it's making my, my wheels spin a little bit that maybe there's just this um, broader American society that, you know, observes these things that go on at the highest levels and goes, well, well, I could do that too. So let's say President Obama um, has, you know, connections with uh, Hamas and Iran and, you know, and then we see that and we kind of sort of unconsciously absorb it and go, oh, I guess it's it's okay to be friendly with Iran and Palestine now. And then Trump takes office. And for example, he, you know, he doesn't, uh, appall- uh, he doesn't, um, um, push push back hard enough fast enough on the on the white supremacists uh who come out in support of him and it takes a few days and people jump all of that and so then unconsciously some americans absorb that and go well i guess it's okay to you know tolerate uh white supremacy you know so like there's this overall um ripple effect uh and and i think i think that's that bears uh that bears some merit or at least some discussion probably what did you disagree with kd about what was the disagreement exactly uh, well, well, one thing, I mean, KD just didn't think that any of it was uh, uh, a ripple effect from Obama. He, he, he thinks it wasn't. Um, you know, I, I my opinions differ. Yeah, um, fair enough. Yeah. And it may but, not be. I mean, again, correlation isn't causation. Yeah. And, and, you know, like I said, I love KD. I respect him. I, I call for his advice all the time. But, you know, the beauty about this country is, and it was funny. The beauty about this country, I was at my circle bar. I don't know if you hung out by circle bar at all at Shot Show. Uh-uh. But, uh, so circle bar is like the greatest marketing tool ever if you're looking to co-brand and um, get business done. It's at, in the Venetian Hotel. It's for people who want to know what circle bar is, it's literally a bar that's a circle. Um and the 360 degree bar and at the end of every day there's tons of people that go hang out there for drinks and stuff like that and you know i was sitting with somebody and you know we were talking about stuff similar to this and then he says he just turned to me he's like yeah man you know i disagree with you but can i go buy you a beer and like that's the beauty of this country is that you can disagree and you can still be friends. <laughs> so, we, we want that, know. right? We want that. We don't want toxicity, and we don't want us versus them, and we don't want contempt. Right? Exactly. We want, we want dis- healthy disagreement uh, because it pushes progress, really. It, push, it pushes an, 
a progress, and I don't mean politically progressive, but like it progresses the narrative so that we don't get stuck in our silos. Yes, we want disagreements and then we want amicable, uh, healthy resolutions to those, even if the resolution is, all right, we're not, I'm not going to change your mind and you're not going to change mine, but at least now I understand your perspective. That's inspiring in and of itself. Exactly. Well, you know, we're pushing an hour now, and um, I want to be respectful, speaking of respect, um, of your time, and I want to honor, you know, that what you've given me, and I appreciate it. Tell people where they can go to get your stuff, your um, your books, your merchandise, how can how they follow you, and that kind of thing. So if people want to follow me, uh, you can follow me at the Pew Pew Jew on Instagram and Twitter. They can find me, the Pew Pew Jew, on Facebook. Uh, if they want to buy my books, you can. You could go to Amazon. Um, if you feel my John Hancock is worth all ten dollars, you can pay that extra ten bucks on my website, thepqg.com, and I will gladly send you a autographed copy. I have an autographed copy. Humble brag. <laughs> it's made out to my children. What else? Anything else? Oh man, I'm nothing. Just I'm just answering emails and. Um, continuing to work on you know my brand and um i just like i said i am waiting for a license agreement so that uh people might start selling a lot of my images for my website on holsters and you know just having a good time i'm really excited to see what comes of this potential new book with the uh celebrity i think i know who it is by the way but um <laughs> I'm, I'm really excited to see what your future lies it's been a real pleasure talking to you and I'm glad we we've gotten to know each other a little bit because uh, you're a real asset to the community. I love the, I love your message. I love the safety aspect. I love that you're keeping history alive for people, and I love that you're being vocal. I know it's not popular in the Orthodox Jew community to, you know, be vocal and put yourself out there. Um, so I appreciate whatever flack you're taking from family or friends or um, colleagues or you know churchgoers that it's worth it um, because i personally appreciate it as a as a non-jew jesus follower i think it's it's really cool to hear about um your perspective your history and it's it's healthy man i just i really appreciate what you bring to the table so thank you for joining me on the podcast and um means a lot well i appreciate it thank you for having me and like i said anytime you need someone mom i'm always willing to jump on and uh you know hang out yeah, man. So, well, on behalf of the Zephyr Wellness family and the Noggin Notes team, uh, thank you to Yehuda Rimmer for coming on and um, go visit him at the com or follow him on Instagram at the pewpewjew. He's, he's a good follow. He's got some funny stuff up there. Uh, until next time, I wish you all great mental wellness. Take care. Take care.